What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 40 of the Blue River Bowhunting Podcast. I'm really excited uh, for the episode I got lined up tonight. Me and him has been going back and forth on social for uh, a couple weeks now trying to throw this together. But uh, Zach Hansen from uh, Idaho, what's going on, buddy? How's it going, man? I'm excited, too. I know, like you said, we've been uh, going back and forth trying to get this scheduled, so I'm super excited to sit and sit and chat with you. Big fan. Absolutely. And I'm glad I'm episode 40. I like even yeah. numbers. So yeah, there you go. Uh, it's pretty cool. I, I don't normally have people on from out west. It's not something that I get to talk about all that much. So when I do get to talk about it, I have a ton of questions because it's not something that I get to do or have ever gotten to do, period. Uh, so for anybody that don't know you, can you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, my name is Zach Hansen. Uh, as you stated, I live out in Idaho, currently in Boise. Uh, which is not our normal stomping grounds in Idaho. We're about to have our second child any day now. Um, but we live in a little town called Atlanta, Idaho. So my wife, our daughter, and our soon-to-be second child live in a town of 35 people year-round. Uh, it is actually considered the most remote village by Idaho state standards in the lower 48. So we have no grocery store. We have no gas station. Uh, we run all of our own electric, own water, everything like that. So about as remote as you can get. And that's uh, where I'm at in Idaho. That's crazy. So like 30 people. Uh, so when you honestly talk about hunting and providing for your family, it's a probably a, a major part in what you got going on out there. Yeah, uh, 100%. You know, whether it's hunting, trapping, you know, that's the meat that we hunt and trap is our main staple which is great and that's something that i wanted to put together when we moved out there three years ago it was almost a forcing function for us and i'm sure we can go a little bit into the backstory of how i ended up out there because uh, i'm actually from back east you know i shot my first deer in murfreesboro tennessee or outside of murfreesboro that's Um, awesome i know exactly where that's at yep so that's kind of where i cut my teeth and got started in hunting as an adult so you know i have a pretty unique perspective on going from hunting whitetails out east now elk bear you know every other big game animal you can think of all the way down to beavers and you know fissures so that's awesome well before i ask you that question that i ask everybody on the episode and how you got started in hunting i want to hear a little background on your uh what you got going on professionally because uh, i know that i found out recently when i listened to another podcast you'd been on uh looking at your linkedin stuff you're one smart cookie well, I don't know about all that. You know, uh, I, there's a lot of luck involved in all of this. You know, the, the ability to A, get out west, B, have a pretty good career in the technology space. But uh, professionally, uh, I'm the head of ML product at a company called Brightcove. So Brightcove is probably one of the bigger companies you've probably never heard of, but you're exposed to it almost daily. So Brightcove is a, a video company. So if you've watched, video online today that's not youtube it's probably hosted through brightcove so some of the companies we work with that we can talk about are you know things like south by southwest or Masterclass or any other number of large news outlets online pumping video out through a player just like this comes through brightcove um so i've been focused for the past year since i've been at that company on helping build out the machine learning capabilities so um, machine learning synonymous with artificial intelligence. So focus on how we could take reams and reams of data and get really cool, insightful um, information out of that and then build that into features that give back to the customers and ultimately the viewer. But yeah, so I've been in that for 10 years. 
uh, bounced around a bunch of companies, IBM, other places. And ironically, and one of the things that helped me get into hunting and especially out to Idaho was I've always been remote. My entire professional career, I've never gone into an office, um, which is amazing and very uh, apropos for my generation, you know, kind of that millennial age set. But uh, it's something that's very close to my heart is, you know, nowadays you can still really get out in the woods. You can get out in the places in nature where you feel comfortable, if that's the thing for you, and not necessarily have to give up a career for it. Because um, frankly, had that not been the case, I probably wouldn't be in the position I am and would not be out west hunting all the time. Um, if it weren't for those kind of fortunes that we've had in our generation and the technology we have to support it. That's awesome, man. How hard is it to be, to work remote when you're that far out in, in the country? You know, it's funny. Um, sometimes difficult, um, oftentimes difficult, I think is the right way to put it. You have to have the right mindset. So for me, I've always been a type A worker. You know, I'm, I'm very focused. I like to provide value. But when I moved out to Atlanta, Idaho, where, you know, I had a shoddy DSL connection and we run our own power. So at any given day, the power could shut down for 10 minutes or three days. And then I'm based on my generator trying to run a router and all these different things. Um, and there's no cell phone service. So something goes down. I can't just call my boss and be like, hey, sorry, I'm <laughs> going to miss these you know calls today that I had set up with XYZ important customer. Uh, but what it taught me over the last three years that I've been doing that is honestly, I can control my calendar and my schedule much tighter than I ever thought I could. And what I mean by that is I always derive my personal value for a company and how many meetings I had, how many times I was on a plane, how many times I was doing this, that, and the other. And you know, those were great, but that was all more of stroking my own ego to say, okay, I'm providing value because I'm needed or I need to have this call. And you know, when things got dropped, it made me consolidate things into one small email or it made me consolidate things into like one set or block of meetings where I can really do some actual genuine work and get things done and then have the rest of my day open to kind of help buffer for the unknown, right? Power outages, internet going out, things like that. Um, so it really just taught me how to rework my work. And that's been the most helpful thing for me along the way but yeah it's still a pain in the ass often <laughs> <laughs> i guarantee it man uh that's pretty cool stuff man so how did you get started in hunting was it something at a younger age or was it something that you came into later on in life yeah so i grew up in georgia and south carolina um split my time there um i grew up i'd say exposed to hunting i mean you grew up in georgia south carolina you're gonna meet friends in high school wherever who hunt but it was not something that was ingrained in my family. My dad didn't hunt. My granddad didn't hunt. So I never went hunting and I barely ever went fishing growing up. And it wasn't until my late 20s, um, my ex-wife and I were living in Louisiana. Uh, it was about the time all the kind of influencers were really starting to kind of show bow hunting and stuff. And uh, my ex-wife and I were very much into fitness. You know, we've done competitive jujitsu forever. We've you know, all crossfitters. I used to run ultra marathons, things like that. So food was always a big thing for us. We'd be meal prepping, doing these things. And, you know, her parents who were from Shelbyville, Tennessee, outside of Murfreesboro That's were awesome. hunters. So I, I, as we were married for the seven years, I would go to their family reunions and their family reunions every year were based around a squirrel hunt. 
So we'd go there, they'd be doing squirrel hunting. I never really felt comfortable getting involved. Mostly again, my own ego. I didn't want to embarrass myself. And I just saw these things. I'm like, that's so crazy. But they take the meat, they donate it to a local shelter. And uh, it was really cool. And, you know, after that, every year, her dad would give us venison. So, you know, he'd shoot a deer, he'd, you know, get it all processed. And then we'd get some and we'd eat it and be like, man, this is delicious. And, you know, the nutritional value is much higher than whatever we were getting over the counter. So eventually it just started chipping away at my, you know, armor of like being embarrassed to start something new. And I asked my ex-wife, I'm like, hey, I really want to do this. Can we, can we do something? Can you give me a budget? Let's go figure out what I can do for a bow. So um, talked to some old friends who were built about like me. And I ended up getting a, God, what looks like now that I know about bow hunting, probably like a 1990s Matthews bow with an axle to axle length that was a little bit too short for me and a draw length that was a little too short. So when I actually was at full draw, you know, I was all kind of, gimped up a little bit uh, <laughs> but i made it work and i built a range in the backyard and i ended up shooting thousands of arrows and you know that was kind of my path uh as far as learning to shoot a bow and then you know the whole actually learning to hunt as a 27 28 into my early 30 year old you know with no background was a you know different story all itself you know i think you know uh i don't know if people look at it as a negative aspect to getting into it uh at a uh, an older age but i feel like you could roll with the punches a little bit better compared to being a uh, 13 14 year old kid you know not really that 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 knowledge of what you're seeing and what's playing out in front of you really hitting home you know mm-hmm. what i mean i feel like uh being 29 30 years old it may uh, hit your memory bank a little bit better and you learn from your experiences and turn it around probably pretty quickly uh, being uh, that uh, of that age. I know I'm going to be taking uh, my son on his first hunt ever uh, of anything um, squirrel squirrel hunting here in the next probably couple weeks whenever it comes in. And, uh, you know, that at that point, you're just trying to get them out there and get them used to uh, the outdoors and all that kind of stuff. But I can remember being having those uh, older bows like you're talking about. You know, you're not even shooting carbon arrows in. Mm-hmm. We were shooting them big, fat aluminum ones that probably bent every time we shot one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I'm thankful, you know, with hindsight being what it is, that I had the experience and I didn't do that because as a kid, you know, my dad was great. We did all sorts of stuff, but, you know, I didn't always take to the things he wanted me to take to. Like he played baseball in college. So I was you know, destined to be a baseball player. I hated it. Most boring sport in the world. You know, I wanted to wrestle and, you know, do things with my hands. And that's what I was drawn to. So I could imagine a world where had my dad been a hunter, you know, he took me out you know, under his arm, you know, Hey son, come on, let's go learn these things. I probably would go, this is so boring. I, you know, I'd rather <laughs> be doing whatever else I could be doing, you know, not, you know, maybe it would be different. And a lot of people you hear do take to it, but you know, I, I could imagine that world. So I'm thankful for myself that it really did kind of ultimately um, come later in life, even though the learning curve now just is insurmountable, you know, I'm never going to be able to it up. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't really all that interested in it at first myself. So I think I've even told that story on here before. I think the first few times I went out with my dad, I was, uh, I want to say 12 or 13 years old. Um, I was a big athlete back then too. So I was in shape to do so. Um, but I can remember having like my game boy up in the, the ladder stand, kind of just going away, not even caring what I saw. We didn't see anything the first couple times I went. 
and then they said, hey, would you like to, we have a, a it was an old, I don't even know what kind of camera it was. You know, she took those little bitty tapes and they're like, hey, would you be interested in filming us? Yeah, let me let me try that. Let me see what I, if I can, you know, draw my interest on something. And uh, I can remember hunting that day, and we saw—I don't know if coyotes pushed them or what—but we saw like a big uh, herd of deer, like thirty or forty deer, run across the field. Some came our way. We had some action, you know. Boom! It lit that spark. Uh, I haven't missed uh, any time in the woods since. Uh, I've been basically addicted for the, my the rest 17 years later you know that's all i think about is deer hunting 365 days a year uh but i can remember not having that that initial spark but when it finally hit boy did it hit (laughs) yeah see that was smart though you know whether that was your dad or another family member who did that they probably said you know oh man brett's all into his freaking game boy and technology he's like well how can we kind of get that interest? And at least, you know, maybe it wasn't conscious on their part, but to get them to give you that camera to say, Hey, like, you know, no, it's boring, but here, you know, you capture the moment. So you have to be paying attention so that when that moment happens, you can capture it and you can be the hero in the story. So that's kind of cool. I wish I had some way to, I don't even know how I define that film. Uh, It's probably somewhere. Actually the same camera captured my first kill ever in the or harvest in the woods uh when i was 14 years old down in kentucky i shot a, a little jake it was my first ever turkey hunt killed the bird 30 minutes into the hunt uh, and it's all on that little camera but i can remember like we didn't know what we were doing we were just having fun you know but i can remember having that camera and sitting in a ground blind with my uncle and we used to use walkie talkies a lot back in the day. And they're like, Hey, there's one coming behind you guys. You'll never be able to get it. Uh, you know, go back, uh, 50 yards in the woods and you might be able to get a shot on this nice buck. And I remember my uncle was hunting with a bow and a gun. He had both with him in the blind. So he grabs a gun and, you know, kind of takes off back through the woods. Next thing I know, I got like 10 deer in front of me. You know, and there is no absolute way I could have pulled my uncle's bow back at the time. I was, uh, you know, a little scrawny thing. He's 6'5", 270 pounds, probably pulling a 70-pound draw or something. There's no way I could have done it. But they're like 10 yards in front of the blind, and I'm just sitting there with the camera like, well, this is cool, but I wish I could shoot one. (laughs) I don't know if that them stories, and, I, you know, it's not really making a connection until now kind of talking about it. I wonder if that's really what drove me on later in life. Uh, to get into videography as much as I've gotten into it is just that that initial thing that got me into the outdoors and now I'm obsessed with capturing everything that I do on film yeah I can imagine a world where that happens you know and I'm in the world of video you know in a professional career so I think you know our goal you know Bright Cove and other companies I've been a part of in video is like that's the medium of communication these days right it's is truly the way to show like the picture is worth a thousand words and a video is worth, you know, exponentially more. So it's something about telling a story in like an honest and true fashion. Yeah. You can cut stuff together, but especially in the hunting world, like there's editing and things like that for different shows. But at the end of the day, it's usually a very pure reflection of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Idaho a little bit. Um, I know absolute zero about hunting uh, Idaho. Talk about um, the opportunities, uh, public, private, uh, and the terrain that you're hunting out there. 
Yeah. So first off, you know, if anybody from Idaho is listening to this, I'm probably going to get like hate mail or my tires <laughs> or something, but Idaho is freaking amazing. Um, you know, I had found out about Idaho um, because my ex-wife and I, several years before we ended up getting divorced and I moved out here full time, we were down in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, you know, we usually went and did our like yearly vacation kind of somewhere remote, like from a, a beach setting, right? Like we'd go to Turkey or somewhere worldwide, right? So we kind of do the jet setting thing and always find fancy beaches and it was great. Um, but then I kind of got the bug. I'm like, you know, I, I've never been out West. You always hear how beautiful it is. So I was like, you know, let's just pick somewhere. And, you know, randomly we kind of landed on Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and Northern Idaho, but you know, the only way we could really get good tickets is to go to Boise. So with that, it would have been like a 12 hour drive after we landed. So we're like, you know what, let's just find something closer to Boise. So we flew to Boise, beautiful, clean, small, you know, urban center. And then we drove up to Stanley, Idaho, which is in the Sawtooth, beautiful little town. And I was just enamored because on the drive from the airport, and this was in May, drive from the airport all the way up to Stanley. We went all, all along the river. I saw bald eagles, elk, mule deer, um, antelope. I mean, I saw all these game animals I'd never seen in my life. And this was like two, three years into my hunting experience, uh, or I guess my hunting experiment would be a better word. And I was just blown away. And then we ended up seeing a gray wolf when we were out walking around and uh, some of the trails up there. And it was amazing. So I told my ex-wife and I'm like, at some point, you know, we're moving to Idaho. And, you know, my ex-wife is an <laughs> FBI special agent. So she's like, that's not happening. I got 20 years till retirement, you know, like all this stuff. I'm like, well, we're going to buy a house here at some point and we're going to visit. And she's like, ah, whatever. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, like nine months after that, we were going to be divorced. And, you know, the second we got divorced, I was like, bam, I'm out in Idaho. So I <laughs> came out to Boise. I was in an apartment and looked at properties everywhere until I ended up in Atlanta. But to answer your question, there's so many opportunities. Um, you know, what I didn't realize when I came here, you know, I had my eyes set on elk. You know, I'd already mm -hmm. done some whitetail hunting. I'd done some pig hunting in Louisiana with a bow. Um, I've still never taken an animal with a rifle yet. So it's all bow hunting. Um, That's awesome. And I focused on elk. And I had no idea what I was doing because the terrain was so vastly different to answer your second part of that question. It's steep. It's nasty. There's a lot of timber. There's a lot of downfall. And it's just one of those things where, you know, I've had a couple friends come out to hunt with me out here since we've moved out here. And, you know, they're guys, great shape, everything. But the terrain gets you. It just does, especially if you're hunting hard and you're not just kind of road hunting a little bit, you know, a couple miles back from the trail. But like if you're getting out there doing multi-day hunts, it's a bunch of deadfall from past fires. You know, it's four or 5% inclines. There's rock scree. There's like precarious cliffs. There's all this stuff and it's tough. Um, but I focused on elk originally and, you know, to kind of, and, and this is another part of being, benefit of being an adult onset hunter somebody who kind of learns later in life like i am more established now so i had the means to be like look i want to do an outfitted hunt you know i want to take somebody or go with somebody who can actually teach me how to elk hunt i never had dad to do it i didn't know what i was doing i could do diy but i figured if i went with somebody it would beat down that learning curve and it did you know i went with an outfitter my first year didn't end up harvesting an elk i got one shot on one and missed um at 50 yards so you know lesson learned there. 
but it was amazing. I learned everything about tracking, calling, um, dealing with the terrain, dealing with the changing weather patterns that are just completely manic in September in Idaho, where you're going to have 100 degree days one day, you know, snow the next day, literally, and dealing with all that. So that's where I focused was elk. And then from there, I branched out and, you know, been harvesting bear, antelope, mule deer. And then I got really, really into trapping and learning how to trap. And I've been focused on, you know, wolf trapping, beaver trapping, fox trapping, coyote trapping, the whole lot and learning how to tan and do all the furs. What, what, what piqued that interest on the trapping? Um, it, it went back to when I got out to Idaho, the first thing I did is I bought every single mountain man book that I could find. Like, you know, uh, my ex-wife and I, my new wife, we don't have TVs. Um, it's just one of the things that I've never been a big fan of, not because I don't watch some shows on my iPad or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I, I like to read. So I bought every mountain man book I could, uh, you know, of the people that were living in that area. I reread the Lewis and Clark expedition that came through Idaho, all those different things. And, you know, being a history buff in that perspective, I really wanted to kind of connect with what brought people out here in the first place, which was trapping. You know, people were coming out to trap beaver, to sell back east, um, to get shipped over to Europe so people can make their cool waterproof beaver line hats and everything else like that. And that's what drove people out here. That's what populated this region. And that was important to me. And I thought, and I think rightfully so, if I could learn to trap, which I had zero experience, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten my hand caught in uh, either a conibear or a foothold trap, you know, just playing around with it, starting brand new with nobody to coach me on it. Um, helped me in all my other hunting endeavors because trapping is such a, it's a static it's it's more static and less tactile than hunting, right? You're going out, you're patterning animals, you're looking at them all throughout the seasons of the year and saying like, I expect this, this is a, the frame of reference I like to use is, you know, if you're tracking a coyote and you want to trap a coyote. For me, when I go outside behind my cabin in Atlanta, Idaho, there's 3000 acres of public land, literally right out my back door. That's awesome. So, what I need to do is place one trap, which is about, you know, six inches in diameter, maybe, um, depending on the size of the trap, in the ground, covered up with no scent. And I have to have a single canine out of all of those 3,000 acres, put one of his four paws on that one spot perfectly in order to get trapped. That's yeah. hard. It like, is very hard. Yeah. I did um, a lot of coyote trapping several years back. Uh, one of the properties I had was just overrun with coyotes. I had done a lot of coon trapping in high school. Uh, after that, I didn't really do as much. Uh, me and a, a buddy of mine got real deep into trapping muskrats for a long time. Um, but I always wanted to, to trap coyotes. I had a lot of uh, local farmers show me how to make uh, some stuff out of some airline cable and stuff like that. And then I started using the 550s. Uh, and trapping coyotes and making sets and stuff. Mm. And I'm not going to lie. I was absolutely horrible at it. <laughs> yeah, it, It's hard. It, it's a, it's a tough learning curve. And I think that's just with anything, but it, it's, it's difficult. And, and the most difficult hunting trapping endeavor I've undertaken since being out in Idaho is wolf trapping. You know, we have such a 
large wolf population here to the tune where the state of Idaho and um, F4WM will pay you up to, depending on your area, a thousand plus dollars for every wolf you harvest, um, wow. whether that be hunting or trapping. And that's because they're decimating our elk and our deer population out here. And, you know, in Atlanta, where I'm at, we have about five packs that are running around and, you know, you hear them howling at night and it sends, you know, shivers down your neck <laughs> right. because it is just so primal when you hear that. You're like, oh my God. But then, you know, all the animals go quiet after that. But that is hard. That is the smartest animal. I mean, I'm not that smart of a human. So, like, it's not that hard for, like, a coyote or something to, like, outsmart me. It happens every day. But the wolves, you know, I haven't been able to connect on one, but it is an insane experience of having to track those puppies down because they are they are smart. I bet. So what about tags? Is it easy for a non-resident to come hunt Idaho or is it something that you got to put in for points and then draw and all that sort of thing? So, again, I'm going to get so much hate mail um, at some point. <laughs> Or, or spray painted on my house, but I would say Idaho is probably the most out of state friendly state or Western state for big game hunting. Um, all the over the counter tags for deer and elk, they open in December, I think is when fishing game opens it up. So you can go and buy either an archery or rifle tag, and then there's a cap on them. So it's kind of like a, a, you get in the queue. So, you know, whatever that is, like if it's December, 19th that they open it up you're on december 18th refreshing the page till midnight and you know <laughs> right. what you want to get and you and you run right but it's it's very friendly and especially with the predator tags so um so shout out to stephen makovich who is who how i found <laughs> out about your podcast in the first place but yes, you, know, you said you've never been out west so i'm going to go ahead and extend the same invite that i extend to most of the folks that i know back east to come out and hunt with me so Dude, I did I would, that with Stephen and, you know, you know, a lot of people, him and Hall, they're like, yeah, I'll come out. But, you know, to his credit, you know, we met through right. LinkedIn. And the next thing I know, he and his uh, soon to be brother-in-law are on a plane coming out to bear hunt in May with me. It was great. We had a fantastic time. We got one shot on uh, one big black bear. That was a miss. Um, but, you know, ultimately we saw about 19 different bear, but point being, they were able to get a tag over the counter. So bear, wolf, mountain lion are all just show up you can go to the albertsons or the grocery store right here and you know pay for it and put the tag in your pocket and go hunt so it's very friendly in that regard obviously within the bounds of the seasons but right that's um that might be something i have to work towards uh i would uh mountain would straight whoop me right now i would probably have to definitely put the exercise and the work in but uh, we might have to talk after we stop hitting record because I am definitely interested in, in some out west stuff. And I've been talking about bear hunting for years. I've, that's something that's been high on my list. Uh, bear and moose have been really high on my list for a long time. But, yeah, we might have to finish this conversation later. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely take care <laughs> on that. But speaking of moose, too, you know, like um, moose, goat, and sheep in Idaho is obviously a lot more locked down. So, you know, you can put in for a lottery for that every year. And, you know, in Atlanta, where I live, we have like one little family of meeses, mooses, whatever, um, mm -hmm. that run around, which is really cool to see because they're just huge animals. Yeah. Um, we have several goats right around town. So you can take a spotting scope and sit on my front porch and see goats on the face of Mountain Greylock out there in, uh, that is in Idaho. Awesome. Uh, but I actually put it in for that hunt this year. It's a 1% draw odds 
because there's one tag for my unit, which is the unit where Atlanta is, uh, for Mountain Goat. And I did not get it. And I also learned a hard lesson in funky regulations in any Western state where if you put in for a once in a lifetime hunt, which is moose, goat, sheep, meaning if you draw it and you kill it, you can never draw again. Oh, wow. But if you put in for that on any given year, you can't put in for any other controlled hunt. So I had a couple other controlled hunts I was going to put in for, for like early season elk, late season mule deer, things like that. And I wasn't able to this year, but again, that worked out well because we have another baby coming in, you know, possibly today or tomorrow. So oh, I'm not going to be out in the woods as much as I want to be. Yeah. And that's understandable. I went through that and then my, uh, best friend Ryan who kind of helped me start Blue River bow hunting he's getting getting ready to have a baby in October so uh congratulations on the baby man congratulations to us I appreciate that but I will tell you and I've told my my wife this so I'm not going to get in trouble for it if you're a hunter make sure that you don't do the cardinal sin that I did and your friend has where <laughs> you time it to have a baby during hunting season yeah so, i did it on it. uh i think the the date the cutoff date don't don't get too intimate on valentine's day yeah, exactly. <laughs> nine months later that's the rut i'm telling you right now it is the yep. rut for yep. indiana anyways um so i want to talk to you about your book coming out uh turning feral tell us all about what the book is and what inspired you to do everything yeah so i mean i've had a lot of conversations like what we're having now with folks um because whether it's at work whether it's anywhere people are like well how do you get into hunting you know or there seems to be also a bigger curiosity factor around hunting now like it's becoming more accepted i think a lot of the stuff that happened with the pandemic where people you know were quite frequently especially in big cities going to the grocery store and seeing the shelves of meat empty and people started to ask themselves like oh my god like if this stopped, like, could I actually provide for my family? And, you know, for me, you know, six, seven years ago now, when I started this journey, if I had asked myself that question, like if I had kids at the time, which I didn't, but if I had kids and someone said, Hey, infrastructure fails, you can't get me at the store. Can you provide for your family? And like, I'd probably say yes, just because there's too much ego attached to that. I'd be like, oh, I'll figure it out. But right. when you strip all that away and you really ask yourself, I mean, the answer would have been like a hard no. I don't know how to gut a deer. I don't know how to get meat off of it, much less turn its, you know, skin into something usable that we could wear if we had to. And, you know, these are extreme examples, but I didn't know what to do. And I don't think a lot of people have had to be put in that position to think that way until the pandemic. Um so after I'd come out here and people were asking me about that and like my, my journey into hunting as an adult, you know, I figured I'd write a book. Um, it, it's my second book that I've written, but you know, this one's with a, a, a bigger publisher. That's the same company that published David Goggins books. So there's been a lot more going into it from like the, uh, you know, editing everything else. And it's my journey. Honestly, it starts off from the time that I uh, got the curiosity to hunt. And that kind of talks about that in detail of, you know, how I was living like what I thought was a fulfilled life, but it was more of keeping up with the Joneses. It was like, okay, we've got a nice house. You know, uh, what can I do to artificially insert uh, challenges, right? So that was the ultra marathoning, the jujitsu, these things. But there's always just this hollowness to it. Like, you know, it's like, okay, like, is this it? Because if this is it, then we're good. 
And I, I'm just going to cruise into, you know, retirement. I didn't have this other outlet. And then that's when it started going into the hunting and getting hunt curious. And it just snowballed from there. So the book is just my story, right? It starts off, it covers the divorce. It covers my coming up to Idaho. And, you know, the middle of the book is kind of split between hunting and trapping. So it's literally my follies of learning to hunt and trap. And it's mostly all failures. You know, it's stepping on rattlesnakes, antelope hunting. It's, you know, not really realizing when you're tubing out a fox that you shot in the head with a 22, what would happen when it kind of acts like a pimple and you know, you're trying to get fur to tan and it just makes you sick to your stomach and you got to walk outside to get some air. It's like, <laughs> it's the gory stuff that you don't know about and people don't know about, but I want the book to help people get over that fear. Like no matter how you cut the cookie, if you've got a deer, it's, it's gross. It, it's, it's intimate. It's gory. It's, it's reality. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's what all the butchers are doing when they have to go kill a cow or anything else like that, but we're just far removed. Right. But you don't have to be scared of it and you can embrace it and you can learn to do it. Um, there are more resources out there than what I had now to be able to do it maybe a little more elegantly. You know, there are more mentor networks out there now for people learning to hunt. You know, Idaho has a great, you know, learn to hunt program where you can actually butcher an elk in the program, which is pretty cool. That's um, awesome. So, yeah, that, that's what the book's about. It's coming out October. So if, you know, those who are interested, I'd love the support when it does come out. I think October 11th, which is a Tuesday. Um, you know, so add me on LinkedIn or wherever. I don't have other social media, um, but I'm sure I'll post about it and you can go and. Yeah, I'll definitely keep that on all my socials socials as well because I'm gonna, uh, I want to, I want to get it and read it and check it all out, man, for sure. Awesome. Um, gear as far as hunting in the mountains, I know that it's a lot different than me hunting the the cornfield edges and stuff of here in Indiana. What are some essential uh, gear tips for hunting uh, out west? Yeah. Um... Again, another benefit of being well-established, and I'll probably get made fun of for this too. You know, <laughs> I don't adult, think so. Uh, you know, with some means to purchase stuff is, you know, I went all in on Sitka. And, mm -hmm. you know, I got rain gear. I got everything else. So you know, no idea what I'm doing really out in the woods, but I'm walking around in great gear. But it kept me warm and dry. So I would say, again, the manic weather out here, is the real killer you know it's dry you don't have that humidity that you have back east so you know you're gonna have temperatures that drop down in september or down into the 30s or below freezing on a lot of nights and then mm -hmm. it'll hop back up to the 70s or 80s so just being able to wear good wicking layers and have stuff that you can pop on if you have to if it starts to rain or snow take it off all quiet so i mean the biggest investment from a gear perspective is high quality now it doesn't have to be sitka Obviously, QU is great. I've got some of their gear, too, and starting to play around with that. And there's tons. Numa is fantastic. There's a whole bevy of gear. But I would say that would be the biggest piece of gear advice out here because when I first came out, I bought a big old spotting scope. You know, I got some bigger binoculars. You know, I got a fancy range finder, all these things. And when I went elk hunting for the first time, didn't use my spotting scope once. Didn't use my binoculars once. I only use my range finder because you're so close in on most of these elk, you know, calling them in. Like, it's not really necessary. Like, you could take it. You can use a, you know, you know 
spotting scope to see a bunch of elk far off and that's great and you know sometimes necessary but ultimately if you're in a spot where you've got some good you know, sign you don't need it so you know i over did it on a lot of the gear that i think most people would probably be suffered into yeah that's just extra weight that you got to carry around going up and down the hills there you know that's probably something that i've learned a lot in the last uh we'll say three three to four years um is i'm really consolidating all of my stuff down just just I wouldn't say bare essentials because having a camera and some of that stuff isn't essential, uh, but it's stuff that I'm taking in there. And this year will be my first year uh, saddle hunting, so I'm not uh, necessarily going for a tree stand or lock-on or whatever, climber or whatever it is I've been used in the past, but just consolidating down to one pack with climbing sticks and stuff and trying to uh, buy stuff you know that's lightweight and stuff like that it it can be a whole different rabbit hole to try to go down when you're looking at gear reviews and and stuff like that but nonetheless it's fun and i'm sure the more that i do it the better and that i'm going to get at it and stuff i'm definitely going to be buying different stuff as uh, the seasons go yeah and for the western hunting like outside of gear i think the number one thing and we've alluded to it a few times is the fitness so the one thing I did leading into that first guided elk hunt that I did was I got a mountain tough subscription. I signed up for their 45, 70 pack program. I think it's 14 or 18 weeks of incrementally increasing just suckiness uh, of doing hard work with your pack, with the expectation that you're going to get an animal and you're going to need to pack it out. Um, do it. Um, I have no affiliation with mountain tough. Um, but a big fan cause I've used it every single season to get ready. And I've been you know, not sucking too much wind on the mountain still do once you get up past 10,000 oh, sure. feet, but you know, still it's, uh, it's helpful. Not, so I'd say that's better than any gear you can get is, you know, treat experience. your body the way you need to, to get ready for the mountain. Definitely. Uh, you know, something that another aspect of it that people really don't think about is first aid. And I know that you had kind of a scary situation that involved a helicopter, if you don't mind telling that story. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. So where I live in Atlanta in that small community, like it's, it's amazing. Um, we have a volunteer fire force, which I'm a part of. We have a volunteer EMS. And actually in, in Idaho, we have the most EMTs per capita for you know a city. I think we have close to 11 EMTs, so like 11 out of the 35 people who live there are EMTs, which is great. Um, but we all are kind of self-sufficient, so we do first aid. Um, we get together every Wednesday night. Uh, we'll do different practice scenarios because we are on dispatch for Elmore County, which is the county in Idaho that we're subject to. And when there's a lost hunter, I'm part of the search and rescue, so I'm coming to find you. Um, so we do a lot of different stuff around first aid, but to answer your question, all of that paid off in spades about three months ago. So um, my wife and I, we had a little, uh, we had a babysitter in town. We have this retired woman who's fantastic who lives out in town. will come watch our daughter uh, while we work a couple days a week. So we both had a break in the middle of the day. So we walked out our front door of our cabin with our two dogs and beautiful Mount Greylock in the front of us, you know, 3000 acres of public land behind us. And we were just walking a little dirt road, which is right outside of our cabin. And, you know, our dogs, our 10-pound Shih Tzu and our 130-pound Kane Corso got the zoomies. Normal. 
But my wife at this point was six months pregnant and she was kind of down the hill from me, you know, maybe 50 yards. And when our big Kanye Corso gets going, he's hard to stop. So I yelled out to her down the hill because I was 50 yards back near the Kanye Corso. And I said, hey, honey, Flash, Flash Gordon is running. <laughs> and it was, if I would have kept my mouth shut, maybe things would have been different. But what me calling out to her did was she turned her body. So her back was to me and to the dog walking down the road and the dog was barreling at her. And when she turned, she turned into his path. Mm. He saw it and tried to hit the brakes and turned. But what he did is he turned and he took out her feet like that, you know, going full clip, 30 miles an hour minimum. And my six month, very pregnant wife did a backflip. And I watched it like I was in slow motion and her head found the only rock in that road. And it Mm -hmm. sounded like a 22 rifle went off and she went limp. So I booked it over to her and there was blood pooling around her head. And I kind of got on top of her. She was unconscious. You know, I thought she was dead and I got over and I kind of picked her head up in my hands, exactly what I'm not supposed to do. So, you know, go back to first aid and, the basics don't <laughs> freak out or anything, but I kind of like shook her head a little bit. I was like, you know, are you awake? Are you awake? Come on, wake up. And I had to make a decision in that moment of what do I do? So thankfully training kicked in. And I'm like, well, she's dead. I mean, I had written her off as dead, which is terrible, but I was like, what do we have to do to get this baby out? Like I had no idea how long a, you know, an infant is viable and the mom, once the mom is dead. So I, I have to get a helicopter. Thankfully it was a sunny day. So I sprinted like Usain Bolt back up to the house, grabbed my fire radio, told our babysitter, I'm like, call our fire chief now, like Allie fell. And I was on the radio getting a life flight helicopter within two minutes of her, maybe three minutes of her hitting her head and being unconscious and running back to her. And by that time I had seen she sat up, both dogs were around her. So that was my first indication she wasn't dead. And, you know, got over there and, you know, dilated eyes, had no idea what was going on. But the town response in first aid was amazing because they all got there. The town just descended on us like a swarm of ants. Everybody with EMT experience enough to where, um, you know, I was smart enough to let them take over and remove myself. And, you know, we had a helicopter there and we were at the trauma center in Boise within 50 minutes of her hitting her head. Um, nine staples, three stitches, you know, later she's fine. Baby's fine. She had some, you know, nausea and vertigo for a couple weeks, but ultimately it was the best case scenario. And, you know, that goes to show you should take some first aid classes or have some experience. And you know, what do you do in a place like where there's no cell phone service? Cause we didn't have any. So I couldn't like pick up the phone and call anybody sitting there with her. Like I had to leave her to go get a device, a VHF radio to call somebody. And it's, uh, it's stressful, but I guarantee the things in the back country are necessary. Like having a Garmin, knowing how to use it, having some basic first aid skills and knowing how to use it is absolutely vital. Guarantee it. That's a, a very scary situation. And I'm glad that you guys got everything taken care of and it didn't turn out worse than that. But, uh, Zach's on a time schedule tonight. I'm going to call this part one. 
because I want to have you back on here because I'm loving the conversation, loving the details. I want to get more into the bow hunting side of you hunting in the mountains and stuff. But before I let you go, I want to hear your goals for 2022 when it comes to being in the outdoors. Cool. Yeah. First and foremost is getting the outdoors, you know, with uh, two kids under <laughs> right. two. Um, but my, me and a buddy are going out to uh, West Yellowstone, essentially. So on the, you know, far eastern side of Idaho to hunt elk during the rut with our bows, you know, for a couple days that I can break away from the home. So that's that's goal number one. Uh, I'd say sub goal of that goal is to not get eaten by a grizzly because this will be the first time that I'm hunting in grizz country. And we have black bears, big black bears here in our central Idaho, but East Idaho is a different game. And you know, I'm not a big fan of grizzlies. So I'll be carrying, you know, my uh, 454 castle and ready to hopefully not have to shoot anything. Um, <laughs> right. That's goal number one. Um, other than that, it's going to be some late season mule deer hunting. I'm really wanting to focus hard on my beaver trapping starting in November and Martin trapping. Um mm-hmm. And bobcats, those are kind of the big things. And wolf. Wolf is my big focus later in the year. Um, you know, I've been practicing with my 300 PRC out to about a thousand yards, and I'm ready to kind of get into the rifle hunting aspect of that. And that's, I think, where I'm going to have to go with the wolf hunting. Um, and then doing some mule deer hunting in Arizona in January. So it's pretty stock schedule. Um, but part of that is because uh, I did start another company called the Outfitter.guide. Mm-hmm. And we are actually launching our product in December of this year. So it's going to be a place for outfitters, people who host hunters and everything to, you know, give the end hunter, mostly people out East, a much better, more seamless experience and treat them like an investor when they're paying big money for a Western guided hunt. Um, you know, we've got some good backing uh, for anybody who is a big fan of the outdoor network. Um, we have Steve West of Steve West Hunts as an advisor. So he's on board and we've got some other big name advisors too, which is pretty exciting. So we're going to be, you know, between our hunts, plowing through, getting that <clears throat> product finalized and ready for purchase at the end of the year. So that's the goals. That's awesome, man. Well, I, I truly appreciate you taking the time out to come on and talk a little uh, Western hunting. And I, I got to get you back on this. I want to well, hear more I, of I what you, you got I going. You what, Let's do this then for part two. You commit to coming out next May for bear hunting or yeah, I guess late April, May. And then we can use that as kind of a pseudo prep to say, Hey, what do we need to do to prep for coming out to do a Western black bear hunt, uh, next April? I love it. Yes. I love it a lot. Well, everybody, uh, go check out, uh, Zach on LinkedIn and check out all of his stuff and book coming out October 11th, uh, turning feral and uh we'll have him back on definitely here soon or to talk a little uh blackberry prep but uh go check uh, him out and uh give us a rate and review or a like on uh, subscribe on youtube the whole sh- the whole nine yards you guys know how it goes but i uh, appreciate you guys listening and watching you guys have a great day cool. bye everybody <laughs>